Apologetic, a podcast about defending, not apologizing, for your Christian convictions. Today we're going to talk about a parallel between how we should think about and approach transgenderism and how we think about and approach the gospel and moral issues. I think there's something very helpful here. Now, when I speak about this today, that there will be some people that don't necessarily feel they're, they're accurately reflected by this. So I'm just trying to talk about transgenderism kind of as a movement or a moment by and large uh, and, and kind of in broad strokes. Okay, so with that being said, there is this idea today that uh, you are the gender you identify with that your gender is a choice, and you can choose to be a different gender than you are. As opposed to the the kind of classical and and historic understanding that um, what makes you a man or a woman uh, has to do with how you were made biologically. And now we're seeing that these two things have been separated, right? So now uh, the society at large, at least the, the society with the loud voice, is saying that your gender, or your sex, I should say, is what you were assigned at birth. It's not how you were created. It's not how you were made. There's not an end, a designed purpose to it. No, it's something that someone applied to you. It's not a reflection of who you are uh, or what you are, maybe a better way to say that. And so, since your sex can just be assigned, it is said, or your gender can be assigned, uh, well, then we can reassign it. We can change it. We can uh, behave differently. I read a story this last week about a man in Canada who has changed his birth certificate to reflect that he is a woman, in spite of the fact that he is a he, because he will get a, about $1,000 savings a year on his car insurance, which caused some people to say, how much is car insurance in Canada? But anyways, uh, so th- we see this, this just doesn't work in society when gender is seen to be something that's a, a reflection of self-expression. But people often go a step farther, and they'll have what is now called gender confirmation surgery. It used to be called gender reassignment surgery or sex reassignment surgery, but I think they realized that that seemed to imply that they needed to do something to change their sex as opposed to confirm what they already thought of themselves as being. So this surgery uh, could take a a couple different forms. Uh, We're not going to get really into the details today, but here's what I want to put my finger on. Why do we think it's the body that needs to change? when the mind thinks of itself as something different than it is biologically. So there are people today who may be biologically male, but think of themselves as a woman and will have certain body parts changed or, or removed or inverted or, or whatever, so as to, to make them feel like they are more the sex that, that they uh, feel that they are. And so they are changing and, and actually, in reality, mutilating their body because of what they perceive themselves to be mentally. Now, there are a few problems with this. One, a lot of the people that have adopted this new transgender ideology that I am what I believe myself to be are, are not Christians. They're not even theists. Uh, most often, they are, are uh, naturalists. They believe that the only things that exist are material things. And so on that view, who is the you that is different than your biology? There is no you. There is no um, person that is separate from their biology. So when they say, well, I am different than my biological sex, well, what is the I if all you are is biology, right? If there's no soul, there's no mind, there's no spirit, then what is this you that is separate from your biological you? Well, there isn't one, right? So that's a contradiction at the heart of transgenderism, in my opinion, and there are a few others. But while they're inconsistent on that point, I think we also have to say, why should the physical change, when that is objectively one thing or another, it's objectively male or it's objectively female, why should we change that thing because a person mentally believes themselves to be something else? 
It used to be in psychology uh, in previous years before this changed as a, as a matter of professional practice, that if you thought yourself to be a different sex or gender than you actually were, um, then that was considered to be a, a mental disorder. Uh, called gender identity disorder. And that has changed to now the only disorder is if you have distress from thinking yourself to be different uh, than you actually are. Um, so that's now called uh, gender dysphoria. If your gender, as you perceive yourself to be, causes you distress emotionally, that's the disorder. It's not thinking yourself to be different than you biologically are. So that, that's a big change in psychology, which I think shows in part that um, it, it is definitely not the objective science that some people would, would paint it to be, uh, that there is definitely a political and social motivation a lot of times to how diagnoses and different things are, are conducted in psychology, but that's a, that's a different topic. But all of that to say, let's say you do have distress from thinking of yourself as a different gender than you are biologically. Why is this pretty much the only circumstance, the only condition where we think you need to change your body to match your mind? Which, once again, a mind is not really a thing in a non-Christian worldview, but that's a separate conversation. But why would we say that? We, we don't do that with, with other conditions. There are people who, um, who don't think the arm on the right side of their body actually is theirs. That They don't think it should be there. It doesn't feel like a part of them, and they want it removed. Should we say, yeah, you should chop your arm off because, you know, it doesn't feel like a part of you? No, we would say, you know what, that person has something mentally going on and we should have compassion on them, just like we should for transgender people. Um, but that doesn't mean we should encourage them to mutilate their body, right? We, we should aim to help through counseling and other means uh, conform the mind to what they biologically are. Now, in many states, it's actually illegal now to counsel someone um, to help them change their perception of their gender identity, even if that means conforming it to what they, they are biologically and objectively. So that's something we could talk about another time. But, but here's the thing. We don't do that with people who think their limbs aren't actually theirs. We actually also don't do that with, with uh, girls who struggle with anorexia. I mean, just consider the parallel case for how people counsel transgender kids and how we would counsel an anorexic child. Uh, there are people saying today, well, you know what? If you're six and you think, little Johnny, that you're a girl, well, we're going to give you hormones um, that might actually end up chemically castrating you. And that will, may affect how you grow and go through puberty and, and the, the choices available to you later on in life if you were to get married. But we're going to go ahead and do that even at five and six because, you know, you feel in your mind and your, your person that you're different than you are biologically. That is how society and many actual parents and, and doctors are counseling children today in, in very young ages. Now, how do we counsel someone who has anorexia? Do we say, you know what? Um, you're 16 and you weigh 95 pounds, but you say you're fat. So yeah, you're fat. You should keep not eating. No, we don't say that. We don't say, well, you think you're one thing in your mind, so let's help you conform your body to that. We say, you know what? The, the body actually shows us that your, your mind isn't seeing things correctly, that how you perceive yourself is inaccurate. How do we know that? We look at their biology. We say, objectively, you are not overweight. Objectively, you are malnourished. Objectively, we need to help you. Out of compassion, we are not going to encourage you in the direction of what you think you are, which is fat and overweight. We're going to say, legitimately, you actually need to eat more. Right? We need to come alongside and help because the way the mind is perceiving the body is inaccurate. And it's actually the same way with transgenderism. How the mind is seeing things is inaccurate. And yet society and parents and medical professionals, I think for political reasons, often are encouraging people in the exact opposite way of how we would encourage them if they had pretty much any other mind-body disconnect. 
in, in no other case that I know of, and there, there may be one or two, I don't know, but in nothing else I'm aware of, do we say, you know what, let's change the body, let's um, distort it, let's mutilate it uh, to fit what a, a mental perception is. Now, that point stands on its own. I think that's a very helpful critique, personally, of, of how we are inconsistent here and can actually show that this, this logic and reasoning does not work in other areas. But it's, it's compounded in its harm by the fact that uh, studies have shown that, that a very high percentage of children who uh, maybe think that they are not the, the gender that their biology is um, actually work through that without intervention and, and end up identifying and thinking of themselves as their, the gender that matches their biological sex. And yet now we are short-circuiting that pathway and saying, you know what, uh, well, if you think you're a girl, you probably are a girl. So let's dress you differently. Let's push you into that identity and let's give you hormones to quote-unquote confirm you in that, even if those are actually destructive to who you are and how you were designed to be. So once again, this is compounded by, by the, the poor logic and it's children that are getting hurt. It's the fabric of society that is being torn apart. But all of that to say, now we can get to our gospel parallel here, we often address the wrong problem with transgenderism as a society. We think it's the body that needs to change when it's actually the mind, the, the soul of the person that needs to change, that we need to target our counseling uh, and our comforting efforts there and our compassionate efforts there and not encourage someone in something that's harmful to them. Now, Let's flip this around and look at another issue. There are many issues today in society where Christians, I think, rightly take a stand and say, you know, that's wrong. We shouldn't encourage that. Where strains in the church maybe say, yeah, we should, we should encourage this behavior. And, and oftentimes uh, conservative Christians are saying, no, we shouldn't do that. And, but we also have to realize we can't change the behavior in any type of helpful way, and we are unlikely to change the behavior if we don't address the root cause, which is the fact that um, people who live in habitual sin are not Christians. If there's no desire to fight sin, the, the, the Spirit is not present there. Scripture gives us a, a pretty robust view of the Spirit and, and His power and His effectiveness, and that God, through the power of the Spirit, is actively conforming us to the image of Christ. So if we see no conforming effort, uh, then it's likely to assume that, that we are not a Christian. That, or that someone else is not a Christian. Now, can I make that ultimate determination? No. And I, I'm speaking quickly here to get to a point, so I'm not cashing this out as carefully as I would in another setting. But, but simply to say, the Christian life is marked by in, increasing conformity to Christ, uh, not by, by stagnation. So with that being said, if we are talking with someone, and let's just say they're habitually promiscuous, uh, there's no fidelity in their marriage. Um, and we could reasonably, and I think rightly, counsel them against that for, for even non-religious reasons, right? There are health concerns. Um, there are just practical concerns that, hey, this, this could lead you to get a divorce, and that could be bad for you financially and bad for your children and, and all these sorts of reasons. But we shouldn't think that that heart of the person is going to change without them coming to Christ. And that's the, that's the parallel here. We need to focus in on what is the thing that actually needs to change in the situation. We talked about transgenderism. It's the mind uh, or the, the heart or the soul of the person, not the body that needs to change. The parallel here is when we think about the gospel, it's once again the heart that needs to change before where we're going to see a, a behavior change. So I think of 1 Corinthians 6 here, which gives a long list of sins, um, and I think things that people identify with uh, and practiced habitually. And Paul's saying, if you do these things in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, uh, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're not a Christian, because by doing these things habitually, you are evidencing the fact that you do not have the Spirit of God. 
But he goes on to say in verse 11, such a verse of gospel hope, but such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He is saying that some people used to do these things, and what was the difference? Did they go to a 12-step program? Um, Did they get counseling? Uh, Did they have an epiphany? No, not in so many words. No, what happened actually is, is the Spirit changed their heart. They became a Christian. So the solution to the ills of society is the gospel, and obviously that has downstream effects, certainly. But the the issue here, once again, is is not that a person's um, being promiscuous is their largest issue, although it certainly is an issue, but there are two things to think of here. One, it's unlikely that a person's long-term habitual sin is going to change except by the power of the Spirit. Yes, it happens, an act of God's common grace, but it, it's not something that's, that's very routine. But the flip side is, is let's say someone could change that thing on their own. What they have shown is that they have done it in their own power, and they have still not solved their fundamental problem, which they can actually not solve. Right? Only coming to Christ in repentance and faith will actually result in the, the helpful type of life change that someone needs, because the, the change that's needed is not one necessarily in terms only of behavior and action. It's actually a change of the heart. And so I think that should help us when we think about people. Like, we might have friends who, uh, who are engaged in, in behaviors that we think are sinful and destructive, and they're not Christians. Yes, I, I think it's reasonable and kind for us to warn them about the, the, the social consequences, the temporal consequences of those things, and also to warn them about the eternal consequences, but to focus in on the fact that that behavior is not the thing necessarily we need to change to get to the gospel. It's the gospel and the transforming work of the Spirit that will change the behavior. I think of in the Old Testament when God is speaking of what the new covenant will be. He says, I will give you my spirit and cause you to walk in my ways. It's the spirit that conforms us to Christ. No conformity to Christ, no increasing conformity to Christ, no presence of the spirit. Now, yes, people can muscle through things and white knuckle some types of moral change on their own, but without the spirit, it's ultimately fruitless. And also, it often increases someone's reliance on themselves, which is the the single thing we need to disabuse them of for them to come to Christ. So I hope this has been helpful. There are parallels all over the place in how we think about issues, but there, there's certainly a parallel here. It's the, the heart change in a person that leads to them being part of those who used to do things but have been changed that we see in 1 Corinthians 6. And it's, it's similar with how we approach transgenderism, I think. We realize that it's not the body that needs to change. It's the mind that needs to change. And actually, these two issues come together where uh, as we are made new in Christ, often that, that has to do with reversing the effects of sin in the world sometimes in a temporal sense, where coming to Christ helps people address the sins and distortions and lies they've been led to believe by Satan and culture and themselves. So I'll talk with you next week on Unapologetic.